in keeping with a lot of the theme of recent messages and kind of where my, my heart and mind has been, the New Testament use of the Old Testament, uh, you know, it's very important for us to recognize and understand that the the New Testament scripture is a key of sorts to understanding the proper application of Old Testament. It's not to replace the Old Testament because the Old Testament is verily scripture. And we find that testimony for anyone who would suggest that our focus should be solely in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter is inspired to write that God spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets and to say that holy men of old, holy men of God rather, were moved by the Spirit. God spoke through them. But it's intriguing and it's interesting and it's helpful to understand how New Testament inspiration refers to and interprets or explains the Old Testament. This morning we talked about the book of Nehemiah and how in the times of Nehemiah, the people of God who were newly returned to Jerusalem read from the book of the law. They all gathered together. They all stood up and listened as the book of the law was read. And the reading that they heard changed their lives. It impacted them. They worked and acted according to what they heard read from the law. And one of the things that they first did was reading the books of Moses. They read the account of how Israel was delivered from Egypt into the land of promise and the commands that God gave them, some of which they obeyed, but most of which they disobeyed. In the book of Acts and uh, the seventh chapter, we find the account of Stephen's answer to the enemies of Christ as he was called to give account for his faith and ultimately the words that he spake were so offensive that the Apostle Paul, at the time Saul of Tarsus, gathered the cloaks of those men so they could be freed up to cast stones at Stephen and kill him for the words that he spoke. But Stephen takes that same narrative that was recounted in the book of the law as they read it in Nehemiah's day, and he described for them from the very beginning how God called Israel out as a special nation. He showed his special love to them, and to them he gave his covenant, his law. He gave them commands to keep, and they immediately began to disobey the law. He talks to them about how the problem of Old Testament Israel was a problem of idolatry. And that was offensive to them because they said... We are not idol worshipers. We are the people of God. We don't have a problem with idolatry. God needs us to worship him, and we worship the God of the Bible. We are not idolaters. The Apostle Paul kind of sets this up in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he, he speaks of how men who by nature are given the light of nature to see the glory of God suppress that knowledge and they make unto themselves idols out of, uh, idols that appear like the creatures of God. And they set themselves against God in willful disobedience to the revelation of God in nature. But then in chapter 2 of the Roman letter, he turns to the Jews and he says, the Jews who have received the revelation of God's covenant have turned that revelation aside and have made idols themselves. 
Well, that's the message Stephen presents as he lays out for them the history of of their deliverance into the land of promise and then their disobedience that ultimately resulted in their captivity. So we want to jump into Acts chapter 7 for a launching place this morning and read beginning in verse, oh, we'll begin in verse 38, or no, 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt." saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rimphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus, or Joshua, into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house, howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands." As saith the prophet, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Stephen wasn't preaching a message trying to gain hearts and minds, trying to win followers trying to scratch itching ears. But Stephen was preaching, speaking the truth of God's word, the truth of God's sovereignty, the truth of the narrative of God's history with this people and of their continual rebellion against God. But the focus this morning for our message is found there in those latter verses. Notice what he says. He says, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness until the time of David. And David desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. 
But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Stephen cuts to the heart of the issue with the Jews of the days of the early church. The Jews of the generation of Jesus Christ. They don't understand God doesn't dwell in temples made with men's hands. They don't understand that God doesn't need them in order for him to be God. Going back to the book of First Kings at the time of the dedication of the temple of God. In First Kings chapter 8, Solomon stands before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the congregation of Israel. He begins to speak to God on their behalf. Verse 23, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath, who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept with thy servant David my father that thou promised him. Thou spakest also with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thine hand, as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father that thou promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest to thy servant David, my father. Listen to this, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. And he goes on to pray. If thy people turn their eyes toward this house... And pray to you, the God who dwells here, hear their prayer. As Stephen proclaims to Israel their sin, and turning aside from the God of Israel, and instead worshiping idols like their fathers before them, the message is worship the God of the temple rather than the temple itself. And that's a message that has clear application for each of us today. You see, though, the time is very different. And the church in the wilderness is long past. And the church of today is in many ways something entirely different. The people who make it up are still people and are very much the same. So as the gospel is written and proclaimed and the message is continued... This shift turns from the temple at Jerusalem to the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes by inspiration. He says, Know ye not, verse 16, that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. A temple is as it's described in Stephen's message. A house built 
for God to dwell in. And sometimes we focus so much upon the house that we miss the importance of what it's there for. A place to acknowledge, to worship God. The Jews were offended when Jesus came because Jesus came preaching his own gospel, preaching about the God of Israel, the God of the temple. And part of the message Jesus presented was this. Jesus said, destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. And they said, is he talking about this temple that our fathers built? They didn't understand. Jesus was the temple. God dwelt with men in his body. He was there. They didn't like that Jesus didn't pay proper, in their mind, respect to the edifice constructed there at Jerusalem. They didn't like the idea that they didn't hold God captive to their will because they maintained his house. This idea that a temple is needed is something foreign to the word of God. The temple is not something that God needs. The Apostle Paul speaks that in Acts chapter 17. As he speaks to unbelievers, to Gentiles whose entire lives and finances are wrapped up in altars and temples to various professing deities that are nothing. He says in verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and is made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He goes on to say, God is not far from every one of us. It's important that we... Worship God and not the temple. You say, well, where's the application? We don't even have a temple today. Maybe you might apply it as the building. You know, sometimes we do speak of the church, and when we say that, we're thinking of the building, the edifice. It's really sad when you see an old church building sitting vacant, no one meeting and worshiping there. But if in our minds the church is the building, then we're taking our eyes off of the truth. Because the church is what? It's the individuals who assemble together. It's the assembly of the saints who share a common profession, a common faith, and a common Lord. But the Apostle Paul writes and says that you are the temple. The temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. But how often do we as professing Christians worship the temple rather than the God who formed it? And very much that's what the Spirit is speaking to here in the Corinthian church. Because what are they? They're a group of professing Christians who think what they want is what matters most. They want prestige. They want reputation. They want respect. They want the honor of men. They want credit for the things that they have done. And how often do we as Christians want credit for what we've done in obedience to God's law? 
And Paul begins this chapter by saying what? What have you that you haven't received? So why are you bragging about who you are and what you've done? You are the temple of the Lord. What does that mean? It means God is dwelling in you. It means what you are that's good is what God is doing in you for his glory. It means what you have to rejoice in is the work of God. And it means everything that you say, that you do, that you are, should be to the praise of the God who indwells you. And that was the problem in Old Testament times. It's the problem in New Testament times. Men want to worship the temple rather than the God who inhabits the temple. And we think the house of the Lord confines God. But God's word says no. Solomon asks what? Can God be contained in this house? Absolutely not, because he fills all in all. He's everywhere present. He's the God of all the earth. Do we think we can contain him or confine him? But the Jews said, yes, God dwells in our temple. And the Sanhedrin court said, we determine what is of God. And they had the audacity to sit in judgment of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with power. As Jesus was brought before them, and they said, this man is not of God. If we're not careful in our pride and in our idolatry, we find ourselves rejecting the very word of God because it's uncomfortable or because it challenges something that's dear to us. And we say, I'm a servant of God, but I'm going to have God on my terms. I'm going to have God's word as it fits my idea, as it's comfortable to me. And that's where the Jews were in the day of Jesus. And it's where the Christian church has been at various times in our history. It's where every one of us has struggled not to be in our own devotion. Because the gospel challenges the status quo. It challenges who we are. It challenges us to be something different, to be more holy, to be more righteous, to be more devoted to God and his way. But the problem is scripture speaks truth when it says his ways are not our ways. Why? Because he's higher than we are, like the heavens are above the earth. He's better than we are. He's smarter than we are. And he's just different than we are. Peter had to learn this lesson over and over again. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. There I'm going to suffer many things. There I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, no, Lord, not so. We won't let that happen. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You savor us not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. We want it our way. And what is that? That's idolatry. Idolatry is not restricted to erecting idols and bowing down and worshiping them. Idolatry is not restricted to physical buildings or physical statues. Idolatry is anything that comes between us and the service of God. Between what God's word says and what we are comfortable doing. When we sing the hymn that says, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee, that should hit us 
right here. Because every day we erect idols that come between us and serving God. Because God's way is not comfortable to you or to me. God's word challenges us every day. And frankly, no one of us has the strength in and of ourselves to take God's way instead of our own way. Because we want to figure it all out. We want to know the outcome. We want to know a certain result is going to come. If we're going to take the sacrifice, we want to know that it's going to pay off in the end. But God only gives us his word. He only gives us the command to trust him. And it's hard to trust that which we don't see. So no man is able to tear that idol down, that idol of self-will, in the strength that we have by nature. But praise be to God, he gives us strength. When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, that's what he's talking about. I've learned how to find contentment when I'm suffering need as well as when I'm abounding. I've learned how to rejoice when I'm being afflicted as well as when I've got it all the way that I want it. I've learned to be content when I can't see the future before me as well as when I've got it all planned out. And that carried him to the day, to the hour of his death. That faith in Jesus Christ that comes from him. And that's the strength that we have. Because we are the temple of God. God is dwelling in you. He's dwelling in you by his spirit. If it, so if the truth is that he has quickened you by the spirit to life in Jesus Christ. He has made you for a holy purpose. In the Ephesian letter, when we read that, and you hath he quickened who were dead and trespasses and sins, he's made you alive in Jesus Christ. And that has an effect. In fact, he says he's created you in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that you should walk in them. The power of God is at work in the life of his children. And that is what strips those idols from before our face. That's what causes us to look up to God and to trust him for his word. But Paul writes to this Corinthian church, a church of men and women who believed against all odds. Of men and women who were worshipers of myriad idols and they turned from idols to serve the living God. And they believed the word that was preached, not because it was in excellency of speech, not because it was great and powerful speech, but because of the power of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit contained therein. And they were given the discernment the wisdom, the ability to judge with the judgment of God, to understand by the mind of Christ the truth of his word. But Paul says something has happened. Chapter 3 begins, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, as unto babes in Christ. They've fallen back into carnality. These upon whom the Spirit of God has acted, who have been given the mind of Christ, they're living as though they have a carnal nature only. They're living with what they can see. 
And they're interested in what's good for them. They're interested in what they perceive to be good, rather than what God says is good. And the apostle writes by inspiration and says the word of God is sent forth to build a foundation to the praise of God. To build you up as a tabernacle where God can be worshipped every day. The preaching of the gospel, he says, we are laborers together with God. You, the men and women who make up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are God's husbandry. You are God's building. God is building an edifice. He's building a building to his own praise, to his own glory. And you Individually and collectively, you are the temple of God. The foundation of that temple is nothing save Jesus Christ. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What's the foundation of your understanding, of your identity as a believer, as a Christian? Is it where you came from? Is it your educational background? Is it your natural and physical ability? Is it how you look? What is the foundation of who you are, your identity? The Apostle Paul here says the foundation must be Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter who my parents are. Doesn't matter what my job is. Doesn't matter where I come from. Doesn't matter where I'm going. What matters is Jesus Christ. Because I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. He's done all things well. Everything else is old. It's all passed away. It's all insignificant. That's why Jesus is able to speak to his apostles and say no man has left houses or lands, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, wives, children, for my sake and the gospels, but they'll receive an hundredfold and in the end eternal life. Nothing else matters. No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So how are you going to build? What are you going to build? Are you building something to the glory of God? Are you building something that's empty? The idea of worth comes into play here. Take heed how you build. He says you can build with gold and silver, with precious stones, or you can build with wood and hay and stubble. You can build something a lot faster and probably a lot bigger, a lot more noticeable if you go with the wood and the hay and the stubble. Cheaper materials, easier to move. You can build something that looks really big and really pretty. But all it takes is one match, one lightning strike, one unkept heating or cooking fire, and it all goes up in smoke, goes up in flames, it tumbles down. Gold, silver... Precious stones, something lasting, something meaningful, something of value. Take heed how you build. What are you building? You're building your life. 
Because you are the temple. You're building something lasting, a legacy, something that praises God. Every man's work shall be made manifest. I realize we covered these verses a few weeks ago in a slightly different way. Every man's work shall be made manifest. The day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. The message here is one we should take note of. We will be tried by fire. If you are a child of the king and he's working in you and you are being sanctified by his spirit, life is not going to always be easy. And you're not going to be allowed to build some great, big, wonderful edifice that's made out of wood and hay and stubble because the trials are going to come and the Lord is going to test it. And the wood, the hay, the stubble, he says it's going to burn down and turn into ashes. There's not going to be anything left. Many Christians set out in seeking to serve God. And they take what to them seems an easy path. In fact, Jesus talks about that as he preaches his Sermon on the Mount. He says there's a broad way, an easy way, and there are many who go in there. But there's a narrow way. There's a narrow path, there's a gate that is narrow, and it leads to life, and few there be that find it. The reality is many professing Christians begin their walk with the Lord, and they plan to do great things in His service. And they make a lot of noise, and they say a lot of good things. And maybe I shouldn't say they, maybe I should say we. Sometimes we have great ideas about what we're going to do in service to the Lord. And people look at us and say, wow, look at that man. There's a man of God, a woman of God. Look what great things God is doing in this person. And then the fires come. And it all goes up in smoke. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. The reality is that which is built of gold and of silver and precious stones is always much smaller than what's built out of wood. Because the price of the materials is so much greater. When I was over in Cambodia and in Southeast Asia, there were a lot of Buddhist temples. There were a lot of, of idols that were built. It's amazing how quick they would go up, how big they were, and how beautiful they were. And they seemed to be made of gold and of precious stones. But if you watched them build them, you'd find out they were building them out of wood and styrofoam. And they were painting it over with a gold veneer. No precious stones were real. The gold, if it was real at all, was mere leaf that was spread across it. It's amazing how quickly those temples, those edifices, they would decay. The constant upkeep that was required for them. The corners that would break off and expose styrofoam underneath. Some of us pursue religion as a show. We pursue religion looking around to see what others 
think about us, what others say about us. And that's exactly where Paul goes next by inspiration in his argument. He says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. This is tied to every man's work shall be made manifest. You see, Paul is being criticized. He's being condemned by these professing Christians who want to look good to the world. They want to fit in among other Christians or they want to fit in to society. They want to be like everyone else. They want to be looked up to by others. Here's an example of what I want to be. And Paul doesn't fit that mold. Paul is suffering and learning to be content in suffering. Paul is being abused and learning to be content with abuse. Paul is experiencing financial hardship. He's learning to be content while suffering need. And these people, they're rejecting him. And he says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. What does it mean to be the temple of God? It means to serve him and leave the judgment to him. Paul says, I judge not my own self. If we take too much time evaluating our own performance and trying to decide if we're being successful, if we're serving adequately, or if we're getting the results that are needed, we're going to be distracted from the very work that we've been called to do. This morning we talked about the book of Nehemiah a little bit. The enemies of God came to Nehemiah with various different attacks. And Satan attacks the people of God the same way today. As Nehemiah was governing the city and commanding as the people were building the walls, Sanballat and Tobiah came again and again. And first they came and said, this wall is so weak that if a fox were to run and jump against it, it would fall down. You're not doing a good job. And Nehemiah encouraged the people, what? Just keep working. Ignore the taunts. Ignore what their judgment is. Keep working. And then the messengers came and said, Nehemiah, come and meet with us. Let's, let's talk about the future. Let's talk about how this is all going to work. Let's work out an alliance. Because obviously your wall is not going to be enough. And what did Nehemiah do? He ignored their counsel. He kept on working. Kept on obediently pursuing the work that God had given him. And eventually the wall was finished. And God's name was vindicated. And God was glorified. Paul says, Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. God is the judge of all the earth. And you are his temple. Be careful how you build. Build something real, something substantive, something that matters. 
do what's right regardless of what others say or think about it. And how do we know what's right? Well, we obey God's word. We look to God's word as the source of all knowledge, of all understanding. These Corinthians are being admonished what? Don't be like babes. But rather understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be carnal, but be spiritual. Why? Because you've been given the mind of Christ. Use the mind that you've been given. Jesus Christ, he's the foundation of all that you are. If you understand that he is the foundation of your identity, he is your identity, then be like him and obey his word. Verse 5 is an important one here in chapter 4. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. Judge nothing before the time. In the course of building, sometimes the appearance is deceptive. It doesn't look like what it's going to be. Do you ever drive by a, a building that's going up on a street in town and say, I wonder what that's going to be? And over the course of the building... Your guess changes. Oh, maybe they're building a law office. Oh, no, there's a drive through window. Maybe, maybe it's a fast food restaurant. Oh, no, there's a canopy. Maybe it's a bank. What are they building? Sometimes it's hard to tell when all you see is the stick frame going up. How much more difficult when it's a building built out of stone? The foundation is laid with great care. And stones are built up around. What is being built? By inspiration, it's written, Judge nothing before the time. Until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. One of the greatest examples in scripture of this truth is found in Jesus' words. First, he gives a parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. He says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is likened to a field where the farmer goes and he sows seed and he plants wheat. And the wheat springs up, but as the wheat springs up, also other plants spring up. Tares, weeds. And those tares spring up. And the servants say to the master, should we go and pluck up the weeds? Do we need to go and weed the, the field? And the master says, no, let the weeds grow together with the wheat. Let them grow until the time of the harvest. And then go and gather the wheat and pluck up the tares. And the tares will all be burned. A companion text to that, at least in my understanding and mind, is found in Matthew 25. Jesus says there's coming a day when the king of all the earth is going to sit in his, in his throne in judgment. He's going to sit on a great white throne. And he's going to gather all nations before him. And he's going to separate them. And on the one hand, he's going to put the sheep. And on the left hand, he's going to put the goats. I think it's a companion text. Why? He's gathering all together and he's separating them. The wheat and the tares. 
And to those on the left hand, he's going to say, depart from me, cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And they're going to say, why? When did we not do good? You see, these are people like that Pharisee who went up to the temple to pray. And he said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I do good works. I fast often. I pray. I give. I'm a worshiper of God. And I thank you I'm not like this publican. And then that publican over there says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. In that last day, that publican on the right hand, is going to hear the voice of the Son of God saying what? Come, ye blessed of my Father. Inherit a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The scripture says, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. He'll make known who are his temple. And he'll make known which works truly glorify him. Where's the application here? It's flee from idolatry. It's don't make your will more important than God's will. And so much of the Christian religion today is built on the idea that either God needs me to worship him or God's will is for me to be happy. Have you ever heard that? I have. I've read it. I've read it on internet articles. I've read it in articles of professing Christians. If God sent his own son to die for me, to secure me a home in heaven so I could be eternally happy with him, then it follows that God must want me to be happy. And therefore, whatever it takes to make me happy is what I need. That's idolatry. That's self-worship. Paul says, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself. We need to be careful that we don't apply our own mental ability to understanding what the will of the Lord is. But rather... We apply the mind of Christ that is given us by the Spirit. That which embraces truth, though it goes against everything that our nature desires. That says, I'm going to believe God. The Bible is replete with examples of those who believed God Against all reason. You remember when. Approximately 2000 years into this. Created world. God came to a righteous man named Noah. And said it's going to rain. And a flood is going to come upon the earth. And it's going to destroy all flesh. So set about to build an ark. And build this boat exactly the way I tell you to. 
And Noah believed God. You say, well, what's the big deal there? He spent a hundred years working on building a boat on dry land because God said it's going to rain when it's never rained before. He believed God. The examples go on and on. Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees picked up and left everything and everyone that he had ever known because God said, leave and go to a land that I will show you. He got to the land and it was already inhabited and God said, that's okay, dwell here. And in several generations, this land is going to belong to your people. And the story goes on. And that's the story that Stephen recounts of men and women who had faith in God, who obeyed God. And yet, their children turned aside and sought after idols and worshipped gods that were no gods. No heritage, no family lineage, no claims that we have to any natural succession ensure that we will be the worshipers of God or that God will be with us. The truth revealed in the scripture, revealed in these texts we're looking at this morning, is that God will work his work and every individual is accountable for the work that we do. Every individual is accountable for the faith that he reveals in us. And each and every individual is accountable to serve God and to turn aside from idols. And God, the judge of all the earth, will be praised. He will be worshipped. He will receive glory. Why? Because he is glorious. That's the reason. God wasn't glorified in Israel because they built a temple. The tabernacle, the tent in the wilderness was a home for God as much as Solomon's glorious temple was. When they came back from captivity and they built that second temple and there were some alive who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple and they wept and said, this temple doesn't compare to the former temple in its glory. The prophet of the Lord spoke and said the glory of this second temple will exceed that of the first. Why? Because of the one who dwells in it. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to stand in it. God's glory is not dictated by the idols that we throw up to represent him. In fact, he repudiates all such. God's glory was revealed in Israel because God is glorious. And God's glory in your life, however it's revealed, will not be because of who you are or what you've done. It will be because God is that glorious. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him. 
God's glory is not bound. And if any one of us ever presumes to think that we can restrict God by our understanding or by our service or by the edifices that we build, then we've gone down the same road that the Jews did for which Stephen called them to account that day. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, turn aside from these idols. Return to the God you profess to worship. Return to his truth. Remember who it was that called you. And commit yourselves to be transformed by his word. And that's the command that we receive today. Realize that we need to lay aside our carnal nature. We need to lay aside what seems good to us. We need to embrace what God says is good. We need to serve him. And in so doing, God will be magnified. He will be glorified. Why? Because he is glorious. If we understand that, if we embrace the glory of God and see that he is indeed glorious, then our lives will be changed and we will be more than we ever imagined. And he'll get the praise. He'll get the glory. And that's all we'll want. We won't ever say, look at me. We'll say, look at him. And in doing that, we'll fulfill our purpose. We'll be of value. And what we leave behind, it'll be built of gold and silver and precious stones. It'll be a legacy that redounds to God's glory instead of being burned up and nothing but ashes left. Jesus said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Don't become unsavory. Don't be trodden under the foot of men and good for nothing. You're the light of the world. Give light to the world. Don't be placed under a bushel because that's great, great darkness. Be light. Why? Because he is light and he is glorious. Thank you for your time and your attention and your prayer this morning. I pray the Lord's blessing.